very confusing times. And, and one of the things that concerns me isn't, as I talked a little bit about last week, it's not that the world's confused, because we understand why they're confused. We saw that last week. The Bible says they live in darkness. They don't know where they're going. But what concerns me is so much of the church seems confused. And that's because there's so many voices out. We have what's so different now than we may have had in generations before is we may have had people with opinions and things, but they, they kept within a small circle. But now anybody with any kind of electronic device that connects to the Internet, anybody can be an expert on what's going on and express their opinion. And one of the, one of the con- one real concerns I have is our younger generations, and even some of my generation, have neither had nor lost the ability to think. To think. To think clearly. To not just swallow whatever's out there. And as a result, there's so much confusion. And there are many voices out there speaking. Paul wrote about that. Many voices out there, and none of them without significance, because if you hear them, they will have an impact on you. So how do we sort through this? How do we sort, sort through this? We're going to talk about this today and say, how in the world does this connect with baptism? Well, I'm glad you asked. Just stay tuned in and you'll find out. We're, t- we're flooded with distractions confusing us as to what is true, what is right, what is wrong, and who or what can we believe. All of this, everything that's going on right now has a spiritual background to it, a spiritual purpose to this. So all of this confusion, all this strife is being orchestrated by the God of this world. And the Bible tells us who that is. That's Satan. He's bringing confusion. He's bringing strife so he can accomplish his purpose. For a Christian, that purpose is ultimately to distract you from what you're here to do. And the primary thing we're here to do is to have, a, have an undivided devotion to Christ a relationship with Him that's real and vibrant, and to do the one thing He's called us to do. Jesus made it so simple. He didn't tell His disciples, oh, look, I have this complicated program. I need to set up a seminar. I've got a handbook on what you're going to need to do. They had no handbook. We have the Bible, at least. They had no handbook. He gave them one simple instruction. He made it so simple, you have to be educated to miss it or distracted. And Jesus said, you, come, follow me. He invited every one of them, just as he has invited you, into a personal relationship, a devoted relationship to him, where he is already devoted to you and has proven his devotion to you. So everything that comes against you, to distract you, to destroy you, to wear you out. Everything is designed ultimately to separate you from your relationship with Christ. Not, to, not so that you don't go to heaven. I'm not talking about that. To separate you from your experience, your living relationship with Christ. And, and some of you may be here that you're, you're, you're in the body of Christ, but you don't have a real relationship with Him. That's because He's managed to keep you separated and distracted from that experience. And I find the closer I get to him, the more intense the distractions are that come. So we're going to talk about this this morning. And the key to this, just as the key to anything in life, is focus. Having the right focus and staying focused on what 
is right. It is so desperate nowadays that Christians have a focus to their life, a focus to their day, a focus to everything they do ultimately, and that is the right focus. A number of years ago, Pastor Rick Warren wrote a book that hit the top of the New York Times bestseller list. And it was simply a book called The Purpose Driven Life. And the power of that book was not that there was anything complicated. It woke people up to the fact that there's a purpose for your life. And when you, t- when you see that purpose and you become committed to that purpose, it changes your life. It gives you a, 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 the, your purpose. The focus for your life empowers you. It enables you. And it helps you know how to discern and make decisions in your life. Because if that's going to further this purpose, then that should be in my life. If that's not going to further my purpose, then it should not be part of my life. And that includes people's activities, things we watch, things we read. It's so important that we learn to have a focus and that it be the right focus. I remember when our son, Christopher, was born, we went through a, together, we went through a a, a child, what was it called? Childbirthing class, like Lamaze or something like that. And, And she wanted to have her child and her children naturally without having drugs and things in her body. And if you needed those, that's fine. But that's what she wanted to do. So we went through a class and they gave us information on what you're going to go through. But one of the most important things they told her is when you're in the middle of labor, when you're going through, and all the ladies, mm, when you're in the middle of labor and you're dealing with the pain and, and the temptation is to get afraid, the temptation is to want to quit. Hey, it's too late, you can't quit. You're in it. <laughs> but to go through it, they taught her to bring with her something, whatever she picked out, called a focal point. How many of you ladies remember that? And you paste it on the wall, so when things get difficult, she just looks at that. And when she looked at that, the effort to focus on that took her mind off what she was going through. And she was able to go through that and to deliver Christopher, our daughter Emily, and then two boys at the same time. Bless her. (laughs) But the key is what kept the fear out, what enabled her to go through with it in the best possible way is she learned how to focus her attention on something that kept all the pain and all the labor as a minimum distraction. So we're going to learn today what is the focus that Christ has given to us. The right focus keeps you from being pulled off course. Paul's writings to Timothy at the end of his life. If you read 2 Timothy, I've got a bunch of quotes, but I'm not going to take, running late, I'm not going to take the time to read it. It's all about the right focus. It's all about the right focus. He starts out by, because Timothy was a young pastor, and there was a lot of difficulty going on in that day and age, and in the church. And Paul talks to him about not being afraid, and then he talks to him about staying focused. Remember the things I've taught you. Do not be distracted by what's going on around you. And then he tells them how to do this to teach the other people how to stay focused on the right thing. And he ends in chapter 4 by saying, and this is how you do it. Preach the word. In season and out. There are a lot of other things we do in a search service and a lot of other things that sometimes entertain us. But ultimately there has to be the preaching of the word. And he says, rebuke, instruct, because it's the word of God that will bring us back to our focus. Bring us back 
to our focus. So what is the focus? What is the focus? Well, we're going to go to Romans chapter 6 because it gives us the focus. Don't put them up here. It's Paul's instructions to us. Don't put it up yet. I don't want him to see it yet. It gives us the true focus for our life. Why? Because it gives us our identity. It tells us who we are. Because you're living in a world where there's, you grew up with parents and teachers and, and relatives and maybe your siblings, and we went through lives, experience, then you've got an enemy out there who's constantly trying to tell you who you are. And God tells you, if you're in Christ, who you are. Now, Romans 6, this is a deep revelation. You may want to write this down, although it's not in my notes. Romans 6 follows chapter 5, which follows chapter 4, chapter 3, chapter 2, and chapter 1. And all of it builds up to this. It's building up ultimately to Romans chapter 8. Romans 1, Paul talks about what the world, how the world has rejected God, and as a result, they're walking in blindness. Chapter 2 and chapter 3, basically, chapter 2 addresses the same thing. Chapter 3 says... All of us fall short of what God requires. All of us fall short of the glory of God. None of us, by your own efforts, on your best day, and the best person that's ever lived short of Christ, falls. their righteousness is in God's eyes are filthy rags. That's chapter 3. Chapter 4 says that God has provided a way to be made right with Him that's separate from your own works. It's called faith in what Christ has done. And he teaches in Romans 4 about faith. Romans 5 talks about the glory of God and what Christ has done for us and the love of God. He demonstrates the love of God. And it talks about Christ has reversed what Adam did and became the sec- Christ became the second Adam. And it ends by saying this statement, talking about the grace of God, that where sin abounds, and boy does it abound today, grace does much more abound. But that left the question that Romans 6 begins to answer. Well, if sin, if grace abounds, the more sin there is, then we ought to help grace increase by sinning all the more. And that may not connect with you, but today we have this issue because this message of grace has been taught so broadly and so thoroughly that we've begun to fall into a mistake that also that's happened back in the... In the, in the, um, uh, uh, in the um, <laughs> Luther's writings... Because Luther is the one that taught about we're saved by faith in Christ, what Christ has done. And it's this, if we're saved by grace, then that's wonderful because Christ has paid for my sins. He's done that for me. Now I, doesn't really, I can just do my best I can and then that's okay. And here's the fallacy. There's a great book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer called The Cost of Discipleship. Not many people have the courage to read it, but it has changed my life. I would encourage you to read it cost of discipleship. And in there he has this concept of, he said what's happening in their day and age and what's happening today is a, is a doctrine of grace, but it's called cheap grace. Why? Because it costs you nothing. But yeah, but Christ paid the price. Yes, he paid the price, but grace is not free. It's free that he paid for it. Because here's the fallacy. What's happened is cheap grace teaches you that Christ paid for your sins. He didn't pay for your sins. He paid for you. He didn't redeem your sins. He redeemed you. He paid for your life to redeem you out of your sins. And so Romans 6 deals with this answer. Now you can put it up. We're going to read verses 1 through 4 and then we'll go back. What shall we say then? 
Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse 2. Certainly not. How shall... This, now what Paul is about to do, he's, he's in the answers. He says, you don't know, you've forgotten or don't understand who you are, what Christ has done for you. If you're living a life that's just God's grace is everything and God, I can do whatever I want, then you don't really know what He's done for you. Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? You don't hear that preached very often. Verse 3. Or do you not know, this is is why we're going to talk about this today, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into His death? When you came to Christ... Just as like when many of you came down to the altar and stood before a minister or a priest and you were married in a church or somewhere, best maybe a judge, you made, you made something happen that you didn't understand you did. And if you stayed married long enough, you began to learn what you now had to learn how to live out. And that's the exact same thing you did when you came to Christ. You were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. Verse 4. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God, even also we should walk in newness of life. I want to talk to you for a moment about what this word baptized means. I've talked to this means before, but it's so crucial to understand this is all about what you did when you received Christ. The word baptize is actually a Greek word itself. It's not an English translation. It is the word baptizo. And the origin of that originally goes back to their, to their, um, to the, the, their textile industry when they would weave together white linen cloth and they wanted to change the color of it. So what they would do is they would mix a dye, a blue dye, a red, whatever the color was, they would mix that dye. Now the linen is white fibers, but they would lower that linen cloth down into that vat or container of blue dye, red dye, whatever it was, and as they did that, listen carefully, this is the essence of as they did that, those white linen fibers would begin to absorb into themselves that colored dye. So when they finished soaking it, in the dye, and they began to lift it up, now that linen looked differently than it did when it went down in the, in the, in the dye. It was still the same linen, but it was now joined together with that dye, and that dye changed it, and changed its appearance, so that every else, everybody else would see what that linen now is, a different cloth. It's now a red linen, it's now a blue linen, because it was now baptized into that dye. That's what the word baptize means. It speaks of union, where one thing now becomes submersed in the other, and the two become one, and they now have the same identity. And that's what happened to you 
When you opened your heart, whether you came down here in your living room, wherever it was, when you invited, when you received Christ in your heart, you made a commitment to Him, whether you understood it or not. And what happened by the Holy Spirit, you were joined to Him and you were made what the Bible calls a new creation. To see if we have that in here now. Yeah, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we've known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we don't know Him that way any longer. In other words, we used to be able to see His body, but we have a different relationship with Him now. It's different. It's spirit to spirit. Now, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That word actually means, in the, in the Greek language, a new species of being that has never existed before. Why? Because it took who you were, and it took who Christ is, and combined you together. So listen to me. You are not the same person that you were before you received Christ. Now listen carefully. And he's not exactly the same before you were joined to him. Because who you are now is Christ in you, but who He is is also Christ in you. You are one with Him, which means He's one with you. This is your identity. And when this begins to become real to you, it changes your relationship with God. It changes your prayer life. It changes your relationship with other people. And it changes your relationship with yourself. Galatians 2.20. I have been... Notice this is... That's actually in the Greek language. It's perfect. It means a single event that has a permanent effect. I have been crucified with Christ. See, when you're joined to someone, their history is now yours. This July... Anita and I will have been 55 years before we stood in front of a minister and we exchanged vows. At that time, she and I became one. The Bible calls it one flesh. So, before that time, she was a a single, independent Anita Trenner. But when she became joined to me, we became one. But that means everything that I was All the baggage I had through 20 plus years was now hers. (laughs) It took her a while to discover all that she got when she got joined to me. But she gradually began to dawn on her, this is not just the fair-haired, you know, Ivy League-looking, handsome guy that I got married to. There's some stuff that came along with him, and it's too late. It's mine, too. I won't talk about the other side of it. (laughs) But this is what Christ got when He got joined to you. Everything He is, listen to me, because you're joined to Him, I've been crucified. Therefore, it is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in this flesh right now, This morning, standing here, you sitting here, the life I live in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Your identity, this is part of renewing your mind. You've got to learn to think of yourself as not just that individual you've always seen in that mirror. 
You get up in the morning and look at Christ is living in you. Christ is living in you. Christ is living in you. Can you go back to that 2 Corinthians 5, the verse before? No, 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 I'm sorry. No, 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 no. It's back in Romans. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. The verses we read in Romans earlier talked about that when you do this, you walk in newness of life. It's called eternal life. Eternal life is not how long you live because you're going to live forever somewhere. Eternal life refers to the kind of life, the quality of life. It's life at the level that God lives in. It's His life in you. So we're going through this whole thing because what we're going to do, and I'll talk about this in a minute, what we're going to do this morning, which many of you have already done, is, is it's a physical act to, to, to symbolize what you've done, the commitment you've made. But I want you to understand, this is your identity now. In God's eyes, He doesn't see you as John, Falp, you know, Harry, Alice. He sees you as Himself because He sees you in Himself. When God looks at you, He doesn't just see that sorry mess that you think you're showing to Him, that you may have to come up to Him just cringing. He sees you in Christ and He sees Christ in you. So renewing the mind is the process of changing how you think about yourself. I know, I know you mess up, and I do too, but that doesn't change when I'm in Him. You may go through periods where you just feel like you're backslidden, but He doesn't get go of you. There's a verse in 2 Timothy that says that, that if you're faithless, He remains faithful. Why? Because He cannot deny Himself. He's faithful to you because to be faithful to be unfaithful to you is to deny himself. That's how much he sees himself one with you. Now that has consequences. Because if he's in me, and I really believe he's in me, and I'm one with him, that will change how I walk, how I talk. That'll change where I take him. We have this I wonder, I wonder you know, I better be careful what I say. God might be listening. Of course he's listening. He's in you. <laughs> he's in you he's in you when you're asleep he's in you when you're awake he's in you when you're naughty he's in you when you're nice he's, no, I'm going to get that <laughs> he's in you now listen and here's where here's where our side of it is if I am in him then I'm no longer alone in myself. This is the cost of discipleship. What did Jesus... Jesus put it this way. It's in Luke 9 and several other places. Jesus said, come follow me. That's what he first said to the disciples. But then a little way along the way, he made, he made clear what that meant. He said, if any man will follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It's real simple. You can't be in Him and separate from Him at the same time. I got a vivid example of this several years ago when I finally fulfilled a 50th anniversary promise to my wife. It took me several years to do this, not because, well, I don't go into that. Um, it, it is, I took her to England. She always wanted to go to Europe. We took her to England, and uh, it was a real simple process. We went to Logan Airport. 
time came for the plane to board the plane, and we had to make a decision. Because in order to get to England, now this is heavy, in order to get to England, we had to get on the plane. I told you it's heavy. Had to get on the plane. But to get on the plane, we had to step out of the airport. Because we couldn't be in the plane and stay in Logan Airport at the same time. Because you can't be in two places at the same time. So in order to get to England, in order to get to where the destination was, I had to leave where I was and trust that pilot and trust ourselves to that pilot and to that plane, which was now able to take us places we could never go on our own. But to do that, I had to be willing to leave the comfort of that lounge that we were in at Delta. So what's that got? Because in order to live in Christ, you have to leave yourself. You can't be living for yourself anymore. You heard me say last week this, this statement that could offend you if you don't understand this. If you're a Christian, you gave up your right to your own opinion. Well, I got my own opinion. Then you're out of Christ. Because if you have your opinion that's separate from His opinion, you can't do that if you're in Him. Did you see that? But let's talk about the benefits of being Him, aside from getting to England, getting to heaven, getting into that destination. Luke 15, verses 1 through 11, is all about abiding in Christ. This is the same message. It's all through the New Testament. John 15, 4. Abide in me, and I in you. This is what he's talking about. He's using the example of a tree and a branch. The branch and the tree have the same identity. I've never yet, we have three trees, four trees in our front yard. I don't, one of them's a maple tree. I've never looked and say, that's a maple branch. No, it's a maple tree. The branch is just as much a part of the tree as the trunk is part of the tree. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So we cannot bear fruit for him unless we're abiding in him and he's abiding in us. Verse 5. I am the vine and you are the branches. He who who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. How much fruit are you bearing? Because here's the answer. For uh, without me, that actually is apart from me, you can do nothing. And some of us spend most of our life trying to discover that apart from him, we can do nothing. So in Him is this union. In Him is our righteousness, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Very famous verse. And He made Him to be no sin, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. But those last two words, in Him. Because you're in Him, you have His righteousness. It's not your own. He doesn't make you righteous. He joined you to Him, and now you have His righteousness. And that gives us boldness when it comes to prayer, boldness into the presence of God. We have the same access to the Father that He has. In Him we have His strength. You ever feel overwhelmed? I just can't do this. I've had days I come and say, God, this world's too bad. I can't handle this. And I always hear me answer, no, but I can and I'm in you. So Ephesians 6.10, do you have that in the Amplified? Were you able to do that? Yeah. In conclusion... 
Be strong in the Lord. Be strong where? In the Lord. And look what the Amplified brings out. Be empowered through your union with Him. I face situations almost every day where I don't know what to do and I don't have the strength and I'm over, maybe overwhelmed by the circumstances, but I have to remember, I'm not looking at them alone. He's in me. And if I will turn into Him and say, I don't know what to do, I can't do this, but Christ in me, you can do this. You know what to say to that person. You know what to do. You have the power, the wisdom, and I'm not going to get in your way. I'm going to allow you to do it through me and bear your fruit through me. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things, period. No, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's not in heaven strengthening you. He's in you through the Holy Spirit. All right, we've got to change now. So water baptism, listen carefully, is the physical public act which demonstrates this commitment that you've made to Him. It's like a marriage ceremony. Marriage ceremony is an exchange of vows. Those are commitments. Most of you, when you said, I did, do, didn't know what you did. It's an exchange of vows done publicly because the public public exchange of vows seals this spiritual union that God has brought about. Because what happens and you just make a commitment... I I had a, a... a brother who's passed away years ago, and he'd been living with this girl. He ended up marrying her, and we we're visiting my mother one time, and he was there. And he looked at me, says, "He says, why do you, why did you get married?" In other words, I'm having all the benefits. I just didn't go through a ceremony. Why'd you get married? I said, for the same reason you haven't gotten married. He looked at me. I said, because I understood. We understood that in order for this to work, it required a commitment that we made up front. And see, when you make it publicly then that is an act that you've now committed in front of other people. See, it's not an emotional commitment. It's not an act of just some, some emotion. And so many people think, well, marriage is... Look, I love you, I love you. We've made this commitment to one another. So therefore, okay, why do I need to go in front of a preacher? Why do I need to... Because I love you and you love me. But when the pressure comes, there's nothing to look back on. Every year we have an anniversary. I look back on what we did 54 years ago, 53 years ago, 52 years ago. We did something in front of people that declared our commitment to one another. So baptism doesn't save you, but it's a public expression of the commitment that you made, that you committed your life to Christ, that you have died with Him, you're buried with Him, and you're going to enjoy His resurrection with Him. So if that's the commitment I made, how do we live it out? Well, I, I, I don't want to shock you. But I've not always perfectly lived out the commitment that I made to her 55 years ago. Every day, just there to, to love her with all my heart, serve her as Christ serves the church. Not quite every day. Not quite. A, so what it is, is I didn't know what I was... I was 20 years old. I didn't know what I was doing. I just knew, like most men do, I wanted her. I've got to end this. <laughs> but here's the point. We've had to learn what it meant and live it out. Years ago when I was... I'd made a commitment to the Lord when we first got saved, and I just was struggling, and I said, the Lord, tell me this. 
He said, John, when you made a commitment to me, I took you at your word even though you didn't understand what you were doing. And now you're on the journey to learn to live out the commitment that you made to me. He's held to his commitment every moment of every day. I'm learning to live this commitment out. And for those of you that are about to be baptized, this is an important step that you're going to take. Before we do that, I need to ask this question. Is there anyone here this morning, you've never made this commitment to Christ? You've never invited him into your life. You've never received him. He paid for your sins.